Australia is experiencing an unprecedented amount of forest fires during its spring and summer. It is now predicted that this will be an ongoing issue until drastic measures are implemented. Please consider donating to the charities found in the description of this episode. Thank you. Sydney, Australia, 1930. I have a proposition for you, Mr. Bailey. A most unusual man had just stormed into the Elizabeth Street office of the Australian Workers' Union in Sydney. In some accounts, he dashed straight past the secretary and confronted the bewildered union leader, John Bailey, at his desk. The gentleman introduced himself as Lewis Harold Bell Lassiter. He was an eccentric but charismatic fellow from the Sydney neighborhood of Redfern, but he'd actually lived all over Australia, and even spent part of his life in New York. He had come to the workers' union with great concern over a discovery he'd made while out in the outback. A find, he said, that would be of profound interest to the mining corporations. But John Bailey, who would eventually go on to become president of the union in 1938, was a working-class man, just trying to give the mine workers and prospectors of Australia a better way to organize. He didn't have time to entertain the insane rantings of a shifty entrepreneur. Still, in the midst of a Great Depression, and with Australia's gold rush dwindling to a mere trickle, Bailey patiently indulged Lassiter as he spun a strange tale of lost fortune. Around 1911, straight out of reform school at 17 years old, Harold Lassiter set out west in the hopes of becoming a prospector at a recently discovered ruby deposit. Departing from Queensland, Lassiter traveled to the dry interior on horseback. But when he got to the rumored site, he found no rubies or any real work to speak of, and so he decided to turn around. However, instead of going back whence he came, Lassiter thought to make a more adventurous route further west, through the center of the continent. Central Australia is known by a few colorful monikers, the Outback, the Back of the Beyond, the Red Center, and the Dead Heart. It was and remains an unforgiving, beautiful terrain, colored a stark shade of red due to the amount of iron in the dusty soil. While it comprises 18% of the country, 35% of Australia is considered desert, with 70% of the country classified as arid or semi-arid and it's the dryness and heat of the Australian desert that poses the largest threat to human life. Every breath you take in the central desert can rob a fraction of your body's moisture. Guided tours visiting the outback are obligated by law to carry bottles of water with them at all times, or they're simply not allowed off the bus. But at age 17, Harold Lassiter didn't have the luxury of an air-conditioned coach. While traveling in the Northern Territory near the McDonald Ranges, Lassiter entered a stretch of unfamiliar desert. And it's here that he came across an unusual deposit of white-green quartz, a rift in the ground that stretched for miles, seemingly without end. The would-be prospector approached the reef out of curiosity and caught a glimmer of something woven throughout the stones. In an instant, Lassiter's fortunes had changed because embedded in the quartz reef were deep, rich deposits of gold, like plums in pudding, he described it. 
Not long after coming across this field of riches, Lassiter's horse soon died of dehydration. Stranded alone in the middle of the desert, Harold rightfully assumed he would die in obscurity. And nobody would ever know that a young runaway had just stumbled upon what was quite possibly the biggest gold find in human history. Between 40 and 80,000 years ago, indigenous Australians migrated to the continent, likely from Indonesia. Across hundreds of tribes, countries, and spoken languages, the Aboriginal nations retained their way of living, managing and coexisting with the environment until the first officially documented contact with Europeans. People of the Torres Strait Islands, the body of water between Indonesia and Australia, are included in Aboriginal identities as a similar but distinct culture. The Aboriginal belief systems are diverse, but share commonality from group to group. And if these oral histories were drawn out on a physical map, they would resemble a sort of family tree of interconnected creator figures and folk heroes all contributing to the shaping of the land and the birth of its flora and fauna. This period of creation has varying names depending on the language, but it's often referred to as the dream time or the dreaming, though even this name is considered an inaccurate mistranslation. A closer translation might be the everyone, the pre-creation, or the infinite uncreated. Traditionally, Aboriginal people did not have written language systems until colonization, but they still retain a fantastic tradition of oral storytelling. In many Aboriginal worldviews, the land itself is a textbook, and every mountain, trail, river, and landform carries a history or a legend. These environmental legacies are known as songlines. For thousands of years, the songlines were the way that Aboriginals passed on their teachings, histories, life skills, and moral codes to the next generation. One of the most famous songline places in Australia is Uluru, located in the red center of the Northern Territory. Traditionally guarded and watched over by the Pitinjara Anangu, this breathtaking towering sandstone rock encompasses several famous songline histories and is one of the few sacred places in the country where its dreamtime stories are openly shared with non-Aboriginal people. Within the same proximity is the rock formation called Kata Chuta, sometimes called the Olgas. In Anangu culture, rites of passage are divided by gender, though each carry equal power. The women are wards of Uluru, and the men hold dominion over Kata Chuta. Today, Aboriginal people all across Australia struggle to defend their cultural sites from the encroachment of deforestation and mining, 
As there currently is no Indigenous represented voice or council within the Australian system of government, people of Aboriginal identity are often marginalized and mistreated, a problem that goes back 200 years. The ongoing bushfire crises that Australia faces today, while also affected by climate change, had once been mitigated by traditional land management techniques, now seldom used by government efforts to fight fires. Now, gold has never been considered highly prized or valuable to Aboriginals, but it certainly was for white Europeans. Though the colonial project was long underway, economically, the colonies of Victoria and New South Wales were relatively poor. Then, around the 1850s, someone in the settlement of Castlemaine, Victoria, stumbled upon a vein of gold, thus kicking off the Australian gold rush. New towns and trading routes were built around different mining sites, and territories were expanded as certain portions of the population grew wealthier. Towards the end of the 1800s, several conventions took place calling for a more independent federated nation distinct from Britain. And in 1901, the individual colonies combined forces as represented states under a democratically elected parliamentary form of government. Edmund Barton was selected as the first prime minister, and Australia, as the world recognizes it today, was born. It was shortly after Federation when Harold Lasseter found himself stranded and dying in the middle of the desert, having just found an extraordinary vein of gold. But as luck would have it, he was rescued by a passing Afghan camel herder who revived the dying boy and guided him back to civilization. Shortly after, Lasseter befriended another enterprising individual named Harding. When he was able-bodied again, Lassiter joined forces with Harding in an attempt to locate the gold again by memory. But after a navigational mishap, the cursory expedition resulted in failure, and Lassiter, traumatized from his near-death experience, chose not to press further. Many years later, after a series of failed startups, Lassiter's mind turned towards relocating the discovery he'd made during his youth. He wrote to state officials in hopes of convincing them to fund an organized expedition, though he suspected they might not take the word of a failed prospector. And he was right. It was also bad time, economically speaking, because after premiering on the world stage during World War I, Australia was not immune to the effects of the Great Depression, which is all how Lasseter found himself in John Bailey's office, pitching an expedition to rediscover the reef. It was a wild story, but Bailey genuinely believed it to be true. He wrote to the president of the workers' union, who was convinced, and with almost $5,000 Australian dollars in funding, the Central Australian Gold Explorers, or CAGE, was formed. On July 21, 1931, Lasseter, joined by a team of men that included Fred Blakely as leader and Errol Coote as navigational pilot, departed from the Northern Territory town of Alice Springs. But the expedition appeared doomed from the start. Errol's search plane, the Gold Adventure, crashed into a creek right after takeoff, fortunately sparing the inexperienced pilot. 
on land the expedition's desert terrain vehicle, which, if you look at the photos, was like the most steampunk thing ever, by the way, was no match for the mulga trees and spinifex grass proliferating throughout the desert. Combined with this bad start, tensions between the men rode high from the get-go. Lassiter was apparently amazing when it came to finding gold, but his personality was sorely lacking. And for someone who had managed to convince a group of men to spend a lot of money to go into the middle of the most desolate place on Earth, Lassiter was oddly tight-lipped and very dodgy about details vital to locating the gold reef. In writing on the expedition, Blakely referred to Lassiter as a man of jumbled moods, lacking a credible story about anything in all his reminiscences. The pilot, Coote, considered him a man of most eccentric nature. As the days went on, a good majority of the men on the expedition believed they were on little more than a wild goose chase concocted by a madman. According to Harold Lassiter, he'd spotted the gold reef 100 miles north of Mount Connor, commonly mistaken for its much famous cousin, Uluru. He said that the major milestone they needed to find was a group of three hills that resembled women in sunbonnets talking to each other, but Lassiter's rough approximation did not inspire confidence. Finally, the team reached a great cliff overlooking the barren wasteland. They'd come to a natural divide, and there was no longer a way forward. Lassiter turned to the expedition and declared that they had gone 150 miles too far off course, and that he did not recognize where they were now. But this land basin was a known landmark to anyone with knowledge of the outback, and certainly to anyone who claimed to have once traveled through the region. The team finally had enough. All but one of Lassiter's men threw in the towel and headed back to Alice Springs. The one remaining team member, Paul Johns, was a relatively late-stage addition. He was an avid bushman and dingo hunter, as well as a camel herder who heard about the expedition and thought he could make a buck or two by supplying them with camels. Noteworthy, he was also a Nazi sympathizer. Lassiter, Johns, and his camels circumvented the cliff country and set up a camp near an unusual rock hole that Lassiter identified as one of the closest landmarks in proximity of the reef. Then, in the middle of the night, Lassiter crept away from their encampment. When he returned the next day, he excitedly told Johns he had rediscovered the reef on his own and had come back with a bag of gold. Obviously, Johns wanted proof and asked to see the contents of the bag. But Lassiter, deeply paranoid and suspicious, refused to show it to him. But Lassiter, deeply paranoid and suspicious, refused to show it to him. A fight broke out, and when it was finished, Johns abandoned Lassiter to his fate with just two camels and set back for civilization. This would mark the last time anybody saw Harold Bell Lassiter alive. In the wake of the disastrous expedition, the members of Cage swore to the public that Lassiter was nothing but a charlatan, and a dangerous one at that. They believed that the miles-long golden deposit was, in all likelihood, a fabrication. Almost 70 years on, the tale of Lassiter's Reef has passed into legend, with much debate over how the expedition was carried out and how Lassiter finally met his end. When the members of the gold exploration team left Lassiter behind, he was still determined to find the reef by himself, if necessary. And some say that the dingo hunter, Paul Johns, might have actually shot and killed Lassiter in the desert after their disagreement. After Lassiter failed to return, a bushman named Bob Buck went off looking for him. 
Lassiter's private diary was eventually discovered in the last known camp, though not the bag of gold. The diary details Lassiter's final days, which, as with everything else about his mission, were a series of unfortunate events. Alone and in the wilderness, Lassiter writes that he was in the midst of relieving himself when his camels up and bolted, along with all of his supplies, leaving him stranded. He found his way to Katachuta, which some say does appear to look like the heads of three women speaking to each other. This may be what Lassiter was referring to in his descriptions of places close to the reef. Not long after passing by this landmark, he held up in a cave near a creek. During his dying days, Lassiter writes that he was discovered by a local Aboriginal tribe. Though the tribe had given him a few provisions to stave off death, Eventually, the aboriginals began to see the white man as a threat or a nuisance, and abandoned Lassiter to his fate when one of their mystics marked him for death. However, the surviving descendants of the people who encountered Lassiter tell a different story. A group of women, interviewed in the documentary Lassiter's Bones, remember that their aunt spoke amusedly of the strange white fella who took up residence in a cave on their lands. They remembered him as being kind, though peculiar, and was apparently friendly enough that they permitted the children to go near him. Regardless, Lassiter finally succumbed to exposure and starvation. The tribal women took it upon themselves to give him a ceremonial burial. In his last few entries, Lassiter laments, What good a reef worth millions! I would give it all for a loaf of bread. As this was his final testament, those who read the diary expected a confession from Lassiter, or at least an admittance to his ruse. But to his dying breath, Lassiter truly believed that his gold reef was out there, and he had given up his life for it. His body was taken back to Alice Springs and reburied. At the time, most were content that Bob Buck had retrieved both Lassiter's remains and the diary, but others aren't so sure. There's an apocryphal story of Buck later admitting to a drinking mate that he wasn't quite sure that the body he uncovered in the desert was even Lassiter's at all. And there are those out there who believe that the diary Buck found was a forgery. The descendants of the Aboriginal women who supposedly witnessed Lassiter in the cave also suspect that the public hasn't been told the entire truth. The surviving descendants say that their aunts and great-aunts believe that the man who had lived with them for a time actually survived, and took up with the nomadic tribe heading towards Western Australia. They assumed Harold Lassiter managed to get out of the outback alive. Lending weight to this theory, Mr. Blakely, the leader of the gold expedition, firmly believed that Harold Lassiter faked his death. In his extensive research, Lassiter's surviving son, Bob, uncovered a correspondence from 1936. It details a passenger aboard a ship bound for the U.S., overhearing a discussion between a man and two women, in which the man claimed to be Harold Lassiter. Some think he may have started his life all over again. And from what we know of the man, it wouldn't have been the first time, because this was a man who never told the same backstory twice. When Lassiter first began making claims of having found a massive gold reef in the outback, he initially offered the estimated date of 1897 as the year of its discovery. When he submitted the proposal to the workers' union, he gave them the year 1911. But it's known that in 1911, Lassiter was living in rural New South Wales. And according to a letter written by his somewhat estranged sister, when Lassiter got out of reform school in 1896, he immediately set sail for England. That wouldn't have left him much time to traipse off into the outback. 
Lassiter's Reef enthusiasts speculate that Lassiter may have flat out concocted the story in its entirety, and the whole affair snowballed out of control. Researchers point to an earlier legend of lost wealth in Australia, called Earl's Cave of Gold, which involves a lawyer from Adelaide being sent to the desert regions on advice of his doctor, and joining up with the grizzled prospector in search of a hidden mine. The story is a dramatic account of getting lost in the outback, surviving the elements, and then the explorers turning on each other over their discovery, with only the survivors left behind to tell the tale. Sounds familiar, right? It's possible that Lasseter, who had already possessed a keen love of adventure stories, heard this saga and used it as the basis of his own made-up gold adventure. But all of this begs the asking of the question. Why? What would a man have to gain by telling a lie and going into one of the harshest environments on the planet for nothing? There exists no written correspondence between Lasseter and the gentleman named Harding, who he mentions as having saved his life as a young man. Researchers believe Harding never existed. Casting further doubt on Lasseter's claims are his military records from World War I, when Lasseter tried unsuccessfully to enlist. Examiners at the time found Lasseter to be mentally deficient, having marked hallucinations and a peculiar manner, constantly talking. Earlier hospital records show that Lasseter had endured a head injury, which may have brought about these behaviors. In this legend of lost gold, the burden of proof has always come down to Harold Lasseter, whose public image was greatly distorted in the years following the doomed expedition. Many believe that the reports of his behavior were greatly exaggerated, and that he was just an eccentric man who got in over his head. Others think his unfortunate death may have caused his other expedition members to deliberately discredit him in order to avoid accusations of negligence for abandoning a man to his fate in the desert. Still, there were following attempts to try and locate the reef. In the early 1970s, a team of surveyors working on behalf of a nickel mining corporation came upon an unmapped and extensive outcrop of quartz deposit on the border of the Northern Territory and Western Australia. This was in the proximity of Lassiter's reef country. One of the men involved was Jerry Nolan who put together a team to go out and relocate the quartz deposit, suspecting they may have uncovered something major out there. The team walked the length of the outcrops and found they continued, rarely broken, for a good 20 kilometers. Nolan could not explain why this quartz deposit had been unmapped, only that the shifting sands of the desert might have previously buried it. Could the same thing have happened to Lassiter's gold reef? The team took back samples to Alice Springs for analysis, but tests for gold mineral content came back inconclusive. Nolan, however, swore that their metal detectors had indicated that there was some sort of metallic content inside the quartz. While he never managed to go back to the reef, we may be able to take Nolan on his word. That is, if you trust politicians. He went on to become the mayor of North Sydney in the early 90s. In 2007, Lutz Frankenfeld, businessman and founder of the Darwin's Beer Can Regatta, said he discovered the reef after studying Lassiter's maps, that the reef was frequently hidden by geological elements. In this case, sand wash during the torrential outback rains. While he vowed that the reef was located not far from Alice Springs, nothing has come of Lutz's claims, almost 12 years on. So if anyone was going to find the reef at this point, if it existed, then it stood to reason that Lassiter's own son would be the best equipped for the task. 
Around the time Frankenfeld reported his discovery, a young Australian-British actor named Luke Walker had begun work on a documentary on the Lassiter legend. He contacted Bob Lassiter, then 84 years old, and didn't expect much of a response. He was sure the man had long outworn his patience for reef fanatics bothering him about his father. But when Walker heard that Bob Lassiter was going out looking for the reef one last time, he knew he had to go with him. Bob took a liking to Luke and decided to bring him along for the ride. The result is Walker's documentary, Lassiter's Bones, released in the USA as Australia's Lost Gold. It's probably the most concise and pragmatic approach to the tale of Lassiter's Reef, as Walker is very clear on separating the myth from the legend, a particularly hard feat in this story. While I won't spoil the documentary in its entirety, it does give us some new ideas to consider on whether or not the fabled reef is still out there in the outback waiting to be discovered. Part of the Lassiter mythos is that, supposedly every now and then, a member of an aboriginal community within the purported reef country suddenly turns up in town with tons and tons of cash. A lot of these anecdotes should probably be taken with a grain of salt. The intricacies of aboriginal life and land ownership, and Australia's history with gold, are complex and expectedly pretty harsh. But tugging on this thread, if there was a noticeable landmass in the middle of the desert, it stands to reason that the Aboriginal nations in the area would have been aware of it, and probably long before Harold Lassiter got there. It's also possible that, barring its non-existence that is, a geological formation of that magnitude might be considered a songline. No known Dreamtime stories from that area have yet to be linked to something that sounds like Lassiter's Reef. However, it's important to note that a lot of ritual and oral storytelling is considered sacred, and not always readily shared with outsiders. The Bushman, Bob Buck, might have ascribed to a theory like this, as he was known to be friendly with the Pitjantjara tribes in the area. During his recovery of Lassiter's remains, he followed one of the late adventurer's leads, that the gold could be pinpointed somewhere near a rock hole, the same rock hole where Lassiter and Johns parted ways. Buck knew of a site that matched this description, which he knew was held sacred by the local tribes. But Buck says that he looked around the area with his men and found nothing of significance at the time. Walker and Lassiter's son, Bob, followed this example and spoke to both a folklorist, Dick Kimber, and an Aboriginal guide named Sandy from that area. Kimber alleged that he had actually been taken to a site matching the reef's description in 1972, but he didn't find any gold there, just lots of very attractive white quartz. And his account is very similar to Jerry Nolan's story of finding a long quartz seam roughly around the same time period and area. The end of Walker's documentary takes a bit of a turn into the fantastical and dramatic, so I'll just encourage you to watch it for yourself. But the saga leaves the existence of Lassiter's Reef open-ended. Now, Walker does manage to confirm with geologists that it is theoretically possible for gold to be found in Central Australia. And it may be that Harold Lassiter did, in fact, stumble upon a lengthy deposit of quartz without gold, which, as far as natural wonders are concerned, is still pretty astounding. However, as with all things Lassiter, the truth is always just a bit exaggerated.
The Arenda people of Alice Springs say that the area around the town, including its famous ridges, was once the site of a great war between the ancestors. During this battle, the caterpillars who created the local rivers fought against the stink bugs for dominion of the land. In the aftermath of the conflict, the warriors they raised turned into the trees, and the bodies of the caterpillars themselves became the giant ridges that circle and protect the town. When it was founded by white settlers looking to set up a major telegraph line, a seasonal watering hole was erroneously mistaken for a natural wellspring, and the town was built around it. Today, Alice Springs is one of the major, if not only, residential destinations in Central Australia. Though remote, the town draws thousands of visitors each year. Running at shops, you'll find the local Arenda people and other Aboriginal citizens, Australians from as far as Sydney and Hobart, and even Americans from Pennsylvania. And it's often said that Alice Springs is a beautiful and friendly town, full of people who have come there specifically to disappear. Here, Lassiter's legacy lives on in several places that take his name, including the nearby Lassiter's Highway and Lassiter's Casino Resort, the latter famously featured as the destination for the three drag queen protagonists from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It's also here that one can visit the grave site of Harold Bell Lassiter. It's funny, and a little ironic, that a man who wanted to make a name for himself in life ended up becoming one of Australia's most infamous figures in death. But Australia is a land full of legends, and the Ballad of Lassiter's Reef is but one that reflects the quintessential Australian spirit. Optimistic, stubborn, rugged, and most importantly, larger than life. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. Research for this episode was done by Robert Jenner of the Fan Film Boys podcast. If you like this podcast and want to make it as good as gold, you can leave a four or five star rating and Apple Podcasts so other people can find out about it. You can connect with Relic on Lost Treasure Pod or our official Facebook group. You can also support Relic at patreon.com slash relic. The adventure continues. 